In today's very special episode, we'll be conducting our first interview with Tim Tortera of TimTortera.com. Tim is a production accountant in TV and films. He has been in the film industry for over 30 years and has an expert knowledge on all things when it comes to production and production financing. Please enjoy. Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Kendrick. And this is Movies in Black and White. Tim, it's great to have you on. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, we're really stoked to have you, Tim. And like I said, we couldn't appreciate this enough. We're, we've been dying to talk to somebody in the movie industry. So getting a, t- a chance to talk to you is fantastic for us. Well, I appreciate I appreciate it. But you got to remember, the people who work in the movie business are just like you guys. They're putting bolts on the side of a Ford. The difference is it shows up on a movie screen or it shows up on a TV screen, but we're still doing the same kind of work. Right, right. Yeah, appreciate it. Um, so I, my first question to you, Tim, is, you know, a lot of people probably don't know, but what is a producer's function? What do they do on a movie? Well, that's kind of a wide uh, definition, right? So you see a lot of different titles. There's executive producers, there's producers, associate producers, line producers, all different kinds, right? Mm-hmm. But essentially, there were, you can put it into two categories. One is the producer whose job it is to develop and deliver creative or sell creative to some financier, which is usually a studio or some kind of distribution network. And the other kind of producer is a finance person who is someone who either brings money or is in charge of spending money or is in charge of logistics. And um, that would be a, a line producer in the logistics spending side. And then the executive producer, in theory, is responsible for bringing the money. So that's in feature film in television throw all that out it's just the executive producers are the people who created the series okay and a producer credit can be given to an actor a director a writer any number of people um for you know being involved in the creative of the show or sometimes for just showing up because there's what we like to call you know credit inflation so you start out as a maybe writer, you become a story editor, you become a showrunner, you become a producer, those kinds of things. You're sort of, I've skipped a lot of steps in there, but um, nonetheless, a producer is a nebulous title and it's changed over time very much compared to what it was when I started in the business in the mid eighties, it has evolved and it's more of a creative job now, or it's a finance job. Those are the two things. Okay, good. That's, that's very interesting. And you uh, went along with the finance side of it. I did. So I started my career in the 19, mid-80s. I was a freshman in college, and uh, I, I, I took a class that I thought was going to be about stereos, and it turns out it was about recording. And I mean like 24-track recording on a big, oh, you know, wow. records on a big <laughs> mixing console. And I was, I was a music major. I was a drummer. I grew up playing drums, although 
I, I, I didn't do it in any sort of professional way just because I, I didn't want to practice as much as the other guys did who were better, a lot better than me. So for those of you musicians out there, um, practice. It's the only thing that makes you better, honestly. Yeah, but nonetheless, definitely. I took a class. I got a job in a recording studio as a tape op. I worked my way up. I got a degree in advertising simultaneously. I left the record business to go work in marketing at an ad agency for a, um, for a studio, Columbia Pictures. And that turned into uh, a great job for a couple of years. I learned a lot. Some amazing movies. Um, you know, I worked on Bugsy, Terminator 2, Total Recall, The Doors. I mean, some huge titles. And then, and I was a super junior person, to be clear. I wasn't making any decisions. I was just punching out work all day long. And then I went to go be a PA on a TV show. And that's when my career really started in, in production. And I found in that job that I really wanted to be working in production finance because I wanted to learn how movies were budgeted, how they worked. And my goal when I started doing that job was to become a production executive for an independent producer in town that was making TV and features. And I did that by the time I was 30, and it happened to be Oprah Winfrey's production company here in L.A. Oh, and wow. we made um, uh, long-form TV, so TV movies, and some episodic. Well, that was our job. We didn't make any while I was there. And we made feature films. So I ran physical production for Oprah for about five years for TV here in L.A. and movies. And um, when I left that, I freelanced for a bunch of years, did some private equity for Peter Goober, and now I'm a CFO for a half a dozen people in town. So I started out in finance, as you said, with a particular goal, which was I wanted to be a production executive. I knew that was my step. I happened to get there by the time I was 30, and I was bored by the time I was 35. So, um, and I started there because it was one of those jobs that didn't seem like a dead end to me, where a lot of them did. Cool. So, definitely makes yeah. sense. I feel you there. <laughs> that is definitely in my wheelhouse. Um, so it's definitely what I said. That's definitely in my wheelhouse. I I, I understand about a dead end job. Like once you get to that point, it's time to switch the field. So yeah, you have Tim or kids, correct Tim? I do have a ten year old. Oh, you do. I didn't okay. Have kids till I was was much older. Oh, okay. So you left producing films to focus on CFO when you had your child, right? Because you wanted to focus more on being home and everything, right? I did. So you know. Working in film production is, it's a very time consuming job. It's all or nothing. They're very long days, especially when you're shooting. And when you're working on a picture, there's very little that can, that, that anybody who's working on a movie where you can allow distractions in your head. If you do, the distraction has a consequence on your life or on your work and what you're doing. Right. It can, yeah. Can be a consequence of making mistakes at work, or it can be the consequence of just being distracted or not being present for your family. So I made a conscious decision in my early 20s that I wasn't going to be that dad. So I and I really wanted to work in film production. I wanted to travel the world. I wanted to see the United States on somebody else's dime. I wanted to live in places other than where I grew up, which was in Fullerton, California, in Orange County, just south of LA. And I did that in film production, and it was amazing. But I came back after I was on a picture in Monterey, Mexico, um, and I, I had just been married. I was married a year. And my first wedding anniversary, I spent on the road without being with my wife. I sent her, um, you know, I sent her a book as a gift from our wedding, which was all the photographs that we had taken and collected. And I did that from uploading on the Internet and mailing it from somewhere in the United States. And I did it all from my desk in Monterey, Mexico. And I remember sitting there thinking to myself, 
this isn't the life I signed up for. This isn't the reason I waited until I was almost 40 to get married. Right. And I just decided that I had had enough. I, I, I'd been on the road for almost 15 years straight. I had a house and my friends had lived in it longer than me because I had people over taking care of it while I was gone. I was living in Europe for about a year. I had an airplane. I learned how to fly airplanes in my late 20s or late, uh, yeah, my late 20s, early 30s. And nice. I, I bought an airplane, which is just like buying a car. It's not like it's a lot of money or anything. You know, you can go buy a $12,000 Honda. You can go buy a $12,000 Cessna. I mean, there's, there's, anyway, point is I had all these things and I, I had a life in LA and I was away from them for a year or, or, or more in some cases. And I, just kind of had run the course of being a line producer and working in physical production because it gets really repetitive and I wanted to have a family and I wanted to have a life. And then a few years later, my daughter came along and, and the decision I made to walk away from uh, film production became very clear to me when she was around that that was the right choice I had made and there was never any looking back. And I'm glad in retrospect, I did. Right. That's awesome. Understandable. Um, now, are you ever going to go back into producing heavily when your child gets older or are you just going to stick where you're at and see where it takes you? Well, that's a kind of a loaded question and it's loaded, not, not, not your fault, but it's loaded in that, you know, the movie business is a young person's game. It's, it is a, it is a business that doesn't reward uh, people who are over 40. Um, and I'm not, I'm, I'm not under 40. Obviously I didn't get married till I was 39 or 40. I had a kid when I was 45. Right. Um, so, you know, it's a young person's game. And the question is, would I go back into it? If I had a different lifestyle and I wasn't, um, uh, I wasn't a father and taking care of that often, I probably would. However, I will say it is a business doing it in my forties that in my mid forties that is exhausting. And, and you, I just didn't have, the, I don't think I would have the stamina to work at that level and that pace the way I did in my thirties and in my twenties. Gotcha. So yeah. A, I have an expiration date, huh? which is I'm over 40 and B, I don't know that I have the stamina to keep up with the people who are doing it at a much higher level and a faster level than I have at my age. So I would love to, but, um, I don't know that that's the thing for me, honestly. Totally and I'm all right with that. You know, I've worked on 200 TV shows and movies in my career and, I am perfectly fine with what I've done and the career I've had. Right. Yeah. And at a certain point you want to just enjoy the fruits <laughs> instead of producing more. Well, I, I like to say that, you know, my rigor mortis position is going to be sitting in my chair at my desk with my pen in my hand. <laughs> you know, I, I plan on working until I drop dead and that's kind of no joke. I, I don't really have any interest in stopping. I'm interested. I have a lot of interests. I'm curious about many things. Movies are some of them. Um, but I don't have to be producing movies for the rest of my life, and I don't know that um, I don't know that many people will honestly do it for all that long. If you, you look at the tra trajectory of people's careers in film production, I'm talking about the crew, not necessarily cast or producers or any of that, but to some extent producers. The people who do it do it in their 20s and 30s, and they look around and they go, "God, I don't really have a family. I don't really have a life. I think it's time I go find something else to do with my life." And it's pretty uncommon to find 60-year-olds working in the trenches of making movies. They're mostly um, cinematographers and gaffers and really and ADs and those kinds of jobs that are pretty high level. But it's pretty uncommon. Well, that's cool. 
Hey, uh, I have a question for you. Uh, what was the trickiest movie uh, to get funding for? I mean, and to really keep on budget. The trickiest movie to... So those are two different questions. One's the trickiest movie to get financing. And, and for me, that was a movie called Red Light, Green Light, which we wound up never getting any financing for um, because it was a story about... Um, a story written by John Shear, who's an extremely talented writer-director. And um, it was about a man who ran clubs in new york city and it was a really hard one in the 80s with you know thousands of people in them on a saturday or friday night it was a, it was a tough one to get financed um and we were so close so many times but um just we couldn't make it work that was the hardest one um the the other question the other part of the question is what's the most complicated thing you ever did and i'd have to say it was a it, i worked on a halle berry miniseries at harpo that we did for abc hour about a, a woman who married a black white-skinned black woman who marries a white man in the 1950s okay. and it covers the span of four uh, different periods from the late the late 1800s up until the 1950s so it's the 1800s early aughts early teens 20s and then 50s and that one was huge the network gave us a good amount of money, but you know, with Halle Berry and Oprah Winfrey in them, uh, it's she wasn't actually in it; she produced it. But when you're talking about that kind of scale and and what you have to accomplish across those kind of periods with network TV money, that one, I, I got to tell you, when I got the script, I came back to work the next day, and I, I remember walking in the door, and the head of development looked at me and goes, "God, you look like hell," and I'm like, "I got no sleep. I can't figure out how to make this movie." And that one kept me up at night trying to figure it out. We did, and two amazing people came on board, Nora Backrack and Danny Schneider, really, the producer in the UPM, really put the, that picture on the road and, and made it come together in ways that you know, allowed me to go to sleep at night, honestly. Hmm. Cool. That's really cool. Yeah. Um, so when you produce a film or a TV show, do you get to pick what you stake your claim or does somebody give it to you and you just run with it and be like, okay, this is what I'm going to go work on? Um, a little bit of both. It depends on sort of what your position in the world is mm -hmm. in the entertainment world. Mine was more, um, mine was more of a logistics job. So by the time a movie, by the time I come into a movie, it's been developed some executives said, yeah, we want to make it. How much is it going to cost? So my first job is to say, here's how much it's going to cost, and here's how I would do this movie. And part of that is the interview of, of the people that do my job for a living. So you turn in a budget, executive looks at it and goes, yeah, that's the guy who can make this movie the way I see it and the way the director sees it, right? And I'm doing that with a couple, three other line producers that they talk to around town. And we all sit there and do our own thing, and they decide who they want to make it. And then, and the interview process is really a budget to schedule. It's kind of how it works. Um, and then, and then it's my choice whether or not I want to make it. There have been movies where I was asked to come make a project and I did a budget for it. And I sat down and thought about what it was going to look like and how I wanted to do it. I turn in a budget, I get hired or they say they want me to make it. And I just go, you know what, fellas, I, I think you need to find someone else to do this one. This probably isn't my picture, but, um, so those circumstances do happen. They're pretty uncommon, but in in my part of the world, I'm a gun for hire. I get paid a fee, and I get paid whether I you know finish a movie, whether I start or I end or whatever. I get paid over weekly or quarterly, depending on how the payments go. So I'm not really a creative person who has 
any really say in how it's going to turn out. And, and that's kind of, honestly, that's how I used to say this when I worked at Harpo. The reason I worked at Harpo for so long in that, in the job I was in was because I never stuck my nose in the creative. You know, I never, I, I had opinions when someone asked me, but I wasn't pushing my creative agenda about how a movie should get made or how right. it shouldn't get made, what it should look like, who should be in it, those kinds of things. Those are the decisions for the creatives. Mine was a logistics and a finance job, and I stayed in my lane, and I supported the creatives when, who I worked for. Um, I supported them when it was time for me to do that job. So um, to answer your question, I kind of, um, I never really had the opportunity to decide whether or not I wanted to be whether I wanted to do project in one way or another. And honestly, that's probably the best thing because honestly, I'm the guy with the most obvious idea in the room. You know, there are much more creative people right. than me. Right. And that's fine. I mean, I'm perfectly fine with that and I know my place in the world and I'm fine to stay in my lane. Right. Cool. So with that being said, you know, you're being more financial side. Now I'm curious what goes into you building a budget, like presenting, building it, putting it together and presenting it to them. What kind of goes into building that budget? I mean, everybody, when they make a movie, we see budgets of $20, $30 million, whatever. But not many people know exactly what goes into the said budget or what it's all spent on. So how do you come right. up with those numbers? Well, it start, so what you, you start with the script. The first thing you do is you sit down, you read a script. The first time you read through it, you just read it for pleasure because after that, you're going to get it in your head and you're going to be so in the weeds and in the detail about every single line in a budget that I mean in a, in a in a screenplay that it, it it's no longer fun to read. Right. So you read through it once just to get a sense of what the scope is and you kind of put in your head cuz when you get the when I get a screenplay I'll get a, a call from an executive that says here's the screenplay here's the movie we want to make we got 30 million dollars to make it. And that's usually comes down from the financier of the studio. So I read through it and I say can they make this movie for 30 million? If the answer is no, I call them up and say look guys you want me to continue but I don't think I can make this movie for 30 million bucks. I think I can make it for 40. I think I can make it for 50 or whatever the number is. And if you want me to do a budget to get there, I'll do it. But I want you guys to know that 30 million is not going to happen with me. I don't know how you do that movie. So then they say, if I, if it can be made for 30, what a person in my job does is you go through every single line in the screenplay and you do what's called a breakdown and every single scene gets numbered and inside that numbered scene there's a whole bunch of things that got to happen props wardrobe set deck special effects guns visual effects cars you name it all of it if it's period that gets called out there's airplanes whatever and the person that sits in my chair has a lot of the union um, screen actors guild writers guild of america directors guild and then all the crafts the the IATSE, which is the international alliance of theatrical stage employees you have all of those terms and conditions in your head and you literally sit there and break down every single scene that then turns into a budget. And that's that, that budget comes from an intermediate step, which is screenplay that gets broken down. A shooting schedule gets then created in terms of how do you put all these actors together? How do you break up all the, the movies so that all the same scene, the same location are put together with the same actors so that you're not having an actor show up on day one and then, do one scene that's in the same location. In another scene, you put all those things together. You create a schedule, right? Mm -hmm. A shooting schedule. And then from that, you build a budget. And the budget is every single line item that you're going to spend money on, the people you're going to spend money on, what's the crew size, what kind of equipment do they need, what kind of vehicles, what kind of camera, 
grip, electric, special effects, all of that stuff goes into a budgeting program that we all use called Movie Magic Budgeting. And that's kind of the default platform. Uh, it goes into the a budget and, you know, a, a 30 or $40 million budget is probably going to be 100 pages, maybe, maybe 80 pages. Um, $150 million budget is going to be as much as 300 pages just because every single line item in that budget that you're putting together has a particular uh, reference. So if you have five grips on, you've got five different guys and or girls, and the grips are how many days of shooting, how many hours, how many, and, and so on, that turns into money. And then all the money in the program gets added up, and you do that for every single department. And it turns into a number on the bottom. And you do it enough, and you start to see a pattern, you know? You look at it, you go, oh, well, okay, you want to make this movie for $5 million. Let's say we're making a movie for a lifetime, and it's a whatever, it's a Christmas picture. And uh, it's like, okay, I'm making Christmas for a lifetime, $5 million. I got to get the crew size down to probably 100 crew, and then I need to get the acting, the actor's speaking roles down to probably 25. If there's that sort of um, detail, plus you, you don't want to shoot more than 90 pages maybe, 95 pages. And then number of locations. You want to be on a total of 10 or 15 locations. If those are the parameters, I can probably make a $5 million movie work. It's simple, talky, Christmas movie, easy. Um, if it gets bigger and wider, airports, airplanes, explosions, guns, cars, stunts, all of a sudden you're into 10 or 15 or 20 million bucks. And you just get a sense of it. You do it enough and you start to see what works and what doesn't. Oh, wow. That's really, That's really cool. awesome. Uh, to yeah. piggyback that... And and just to go back to that that process, that that a thought on that one, that process easily takes a week. And I would say week. I mean, you're sitting building a schedule, reading a budget, break. I mean, reading a script and breaking it down and then building a budget. I mean, those are 10, 12 hour days for five or six days straight. Ooh, wow, is it good? Yeah, it's a lot of work. Um, it's not like we just go, oh, this feels like it's twenty million dollar picture. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the executives of the studio do. And, yeah. the, and the agents do. They so go, oh, yeah, this work. is definitely a $12 million picture. It's like, come on. What the fuck do you know? You guys make deals. <laughs> now, to piggyback that, uh, you've worked in basically three types of genres. You've worked in TV, movies, and you did Mandalay Entertainment. Which, yeah. if, if are any of those different in the way you approach it? Or is it basically the same tenet with all of them? I mean, like, you know, putting together the budget and all that. So it's basically the same tenet. And the way I like to describe it is, if you go for a Chinese meal and you order two or three things on the menu, you're going to spend 30 bucks, right? You're going to have a Chinese dinner right, and right. you're going to have fun. You're going to enjoy it. You're going to be with your friends, but you've only got to sample two or three things. And that's a $30 million budget or maybe a $5 million budget. And you go with a couple more friends and you order 10 or 20 things in the menu and you all get to have a little bit of everything and you have an amazing, very rich experience. But, you, but in both experiences, you both had Chinese food you had a meal with your friends. You enjoyed both experiences, but one was richer than the other. Right. When I say rich, more developed, more complex, a lot more um, interesting things to try. Right. That's filmmaking. It's the exact same thing. One's a $5 million movie. The other's a 50 or a $500 million movie. It's just it, you're still having Chinese food and you're still out with your friends, but it's just slightly different. Yeah, cool. Cool. Like yeah. That. So I've been kind of, stalking you on imdb a little bit reading up on all the stuff you've done <laughs> i i have to ask what was it like working with the jackass crew and did you get to interact with them directly like i've been eating at uh, me since we started talking about this interview 
So it was fun um, to answer the first question. The second one was, yeah, I was the, so there were, there was a line producer, a friend of mine who I worked with on Tuesdays with Maury when I was at Harpo. Derek was, uh, Derek Frieda was his name or is his name. Mm-hmm. Um, he was the, the line producer on that picture. And um, uh, he, he, I was, we had both left Harpo. He was the line producer on Jackass. And I was out of work at the time and needed work. And I just called him and said, hey, what are you doing? He goes, I'm working on Jackass. I'm like, what's Jackass? I think I had seen one or two episodes <laughs> on MTV. But I didn't really know the franchise yet. Uh-huh. I thought it was hilarious. And I thought, okay, I'll, I'll, he said, I'm working on Jackass. Actually, I need a coordinator. Will you come do it? I need a production manager. And I'm like, yeah, sure. I'll, 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 okay, whatever. I'm not busy. Um, so, And I say it with that tone because I didn't quite – I had no idea what I was getting myself into. Right. kind of had a sense of it. Um, so as time evolved, there were, there were essentially three production managers on, on the crew – there was me, there was my friend Craig, and there was another junior person whose name I can't remember. So I was the production manager that traveled with the cast and and the camera crew. And then Craig was the one on the advance who was setting up everything as we were rolling through one city to the next as we were um, as we were shooting them. Because we'd, we'd go out for two or three weeks and shoot, and we'd come back for a week, and we'd go out for two or three weeks and come back for a week. So Craig was doing the advance, and then there was another guy whose name I can't remember, I forget. Um, whose job it was to clean up afterward to pick up oh, all the, you know, <laughs> the mess if we yeah. broke shit or which actually didn't happen all that often, but it did happen. And so I was the guy who was in charge of, of making sure that the movie could get delivered as a feature film following the rules and regulations of all the guilds and unions. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And um, no one else on that team had that kind of experience except Derek and myself and Derek needed someone on the ground to make, sure that all that got all of those sort of keys got crossed and eyes got dotted and so i did that job and it was interesting that was the first time at that point i'd probably been working in hollywood for 20 years and maybe a little bit less and at that point i had seen how actors operate they they show up to work they're average joes they get in front of a camera and they're playing a part they get away from the camera and or even if they're in the reverse, where they're not on in front of the camera, but they're acting across the actor who is on in front of camera, <laughs> they're they're in their role, right? Uh-huh. And the role gets turned on and turned off, turned on and, and it's mostly off, right? right? It's only on when they're in front of a camera. With those guys, it's, it's on twenty four fucking seven. It never them. ends. <laughs> yeah, that's just who they are. <laughs> it is who they are. It's like fuck. How do you how do you operate at that level all the wow. time? 365 and after about i don't know three months of being on the road i was a round peg in a square hole and i was i was done i was like guys (laughs) these are not my reindeer games man you guys carry on and you know i got fired two or three times by one of the producers who i don't know i guess i pissed her off at some point but then the other producer would come in the next like five minutes later and rehire me back yeah. <laughs> like she'd come in and fire me he'd come in five minutes later and hire me back Good and I'm cop, like, oh, bad okay cop, huh? i'll stay i don't whatever anyway yeah it would um, have to be almost exhausting trying to just deal with all that it'd be funny for about you know three days <laughs> and, exactly oh it was it was funny for about three days Good Lord. I remember Craig and I were walking through the parking lot at, at Raleigh studio. Oh, it wasn't Raleigh. It was in the parking lot uh, uh, at the production office. And we were walking back from lunch and the guys were all out in the parking lot in a circle. And we walked by and we look in 
the cameras are rolling and Steve O's on his back with a beer bong up his ass. And I said, is that Steve O getting a beer bong up his ass? And Craig goes, yeah, I think it is. And we both <laughs> oh, went, oh, okay, oh, let's yeah. go back to work. Yeah. And I remember thinking to myself, that was like May, May or June. I started the movie in probably January or February. I, I don't remember if that ever made it in the movie. I don't, I don't remember if it got in, but I, don't I looked that. at Craig and I said, and we were walking out that day at the end of the day. And I said, you know, there's a problem here. And the problem is, we both just thought it was okay that Steve-O was getting the <laughs> up his ass. Just so, kind of numb to it now. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. It was amazing. So I know they fuck with each other all the time on those kind of things, but did they ever, like, did their antics ever trip over into the crew? Like, did they ever try to fuck with the crew, sure. too? They did, <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. All the time? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, well, it depended. So for me, they tried with this clipper thing, and they were clipping people's hair, and we were in the car in Pennsylvania, <laughs> oh, which was probably the second or third road trip. God. And I, I, I wasn't having any of that. And I just turned around and said, look, man, I, I don't, I'm, I don't want to be on camera. I don't want to be in your tribe. That's not my thing. You guys, thank you, but not my jam. So move on. And they did, they were polite and they were respectful and they realized that I didn't want to be a part of it. And that was fine. Well, that's awesome. That's, yeah. that's a great, you know, that part of it is a great story. Cause I mean, you know, yeah. you would expect those guys just be like, eh, we're, you're well, going to be a part you know, of it. The one thing I will say about every single one of them, they're that way all the time, 24-7, within each other. So okay. within their crew, you know, Knoxville's not going to go piss all over Steve-O's clothes in his open suitcase while he's drunk on the couch in the other room. Right. Uh, he would never do that to anybody else. Right. Right? There was a tacit understanding that it happened within the core group. And the camera crew that would let them, you know, some of them were, um, some of the guys were on camera were also part of that crew and they were fine with it, but they never did it outside of their own group. And if you ask them not to, they were completely polite and totally cool about it. Nice. Mm. Yeah. So it didn't really extend outside the circle. Good deal. Nice. So you've worked on a plethora of stuff. What is your, you know, your favorite memory to talk about from your career? <laughs> I have to say my, my favorite memory, and someone asked me this recently, and I was, I was laughing. I was, I was barking because it, it was a great moment, actually. But um, it, it, it was working on Tuesdays with Maury, and it was with Jack Lemon. We were on the stage for like 15 days doing the last part of it where um, Maury the, – the, 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 the movie's based on a book written by Mitch Album about a man who has ALS, right. and he's dying at the end of the picture. And so we were on the stage for the part in his house where he's, where he's just descending into – into what ultimately is his demise and um the production designer on that picture was friends with his mother was friends with jack when they were both young i forget who michael's um mother was but she was an actress in the studio days and um so michael would bring in old jack lemon movies uh into the stage and at lunch we would he would put one in and jack would sit and tell stories about these old jack lemon movies like the apartment and some like it hot and incredible old movies and and they'd put it on pause and jack would tell stories about people in the movies and it was that was by far the most amazing i was pinching myself thinking to myself is this for real yeah that legend sharing that insight wow totally was and he was so he was so cool and in fact there was a sweet moment on that movie i just was reminded of another one with jack where we were shooting on the ambassador hotel which since has been torn down but we were shooting on Coconut Grove or Coconut, I think it was Coconut, uh, the Coconut Room. I can't remember what it was called. It might have been Coconut Grove. Um, and Jack walks in and he goes, I have my 
I had my first date with my wife over in the corner over there. And his wife since had passed. And it was just a, such a sweet moment that there's this guy. He's like, oh, my God, this building reeked of stale beer from probably the past hundred years. Kennedy was shot down the hall. Um, the second Kennedy wow, uh, was yeah. assassinated during his campaign. And the place was in complete disrepair. No one had been inside this building to stay in this hotel in probably 30 years. And it was just trashed. And here he was with a smile on his face, remembering when it was in its glory, sitting there in the corner, having a drink with his wife on their first date. Oh, my God. Amazing. Man. Very oh, sweet. Uh, yeah, I imagine you have like a, a thousand stories of, uh, you know, great encounters with people, probably some bad encounters as well. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's some unpleasant people who work in Hollywood. For oh, sure. I imagine. Yeah. Well, speaking of unpleasant people, uh, both Mark and I read your book. Uh, a Hollywood accounting and it's fantastic. Like we definitely yeah. enjoyed it. Yeah. It was very oh, insightful. You. Um, you talk a lot about the Hollywood con man in your book. Yeah. So yep. what, what automatically, like, what triggers you to know, okay, this person's a con man. I'm staying as far away from them as possible. Well, there's kind of three, there's three verticals. The Hollywood con man works in one. He will steal the, the unknowing investors, steal their money. Mm-hmm. Um, he will steal the time of crew. In other words, they go work on movies for free or for really no pay. And then number three, they'll steal a filmmaker who finished a movie. They'll take it to the festivals and say, we're going to make buckets of money. You're going to be so rich. Just give me your movie and we will turn it. Mm. We'll do all the selling for you. And your, wow. your days of having to go find money are over. Right. So those are the three verticals. But obviously, the third vertical, I've sort of made fun of it. Um, if you're a filmmaker and you're giving the rights of your title and you finished a movie or a TV show or whatever, and you're giving those rights to a sales entity, a distributor, um, which is what the, this Hollywood con man calls themselves. And there are legitimate distributors and there are sleazy distributors. Right. But if you're a filmmaker and you're giving your rights to a distributor, you have to get money in advance from them. It's called an advance or a minimum guarantee. And if, you, if they don't offer you a minimum guarantee, they're a con man. They're going to rip you off. Or if you have to pay them, to go to a festival to represent you, that's a Hollywood con man. Don't do business with them. Right. If, if you're crew and you're out looking for work and you hear from the producer, hey man, everyone's getting paid pro rata. It's gonna be 750 bucks a week. We're gonna be, it's gonna be amazing. The movie's gonna be huge. It's gonna run the festival circuit. It doesn't have distribution yet, but we think we can get Harvey Weinstein to buy the picture for 10 times multiples. If you hear that kind of nonsense, pro rata everybody's getting paid the same rate that is the hollywood conduct stay away from it don't get involved in it and the, the exception to that rule is if you're a new crew member and you need to build credits and you've got to fill up a page with something that says i was a grip i was electrician i was wardrobe i produced i wrote i directed whatever if you need the credit to put on your credit list then do it but just know you're about to get ripped off this movie will never see the light of day and the skills you're going to learn from those crews are not going to be up to level with the pro game, which is what the studios and the networks expect from you. And then the last one is if you're an investor and you're investing, investing in a project and that project doesn't ha- already have distribution agreements in place. In other words, they don't, they're just going to make it on spec, run the festival circuit, and again, sell it to Harvey Weinstein for 10 times multiples. And we know where Harvey Weinstein is. He's not buying movies anymore. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so if that conversation comes up and there's not already some percentage of the budget, and I like to see 60 or more percent come from 
tax credits or tax incentives or from minimum guarantees on distribution paper that's real distribution paper, not nonsense distributors, then I don't think that's an investment that any investor needs to be putting money behind. Right. right. So there you go. Yeah. That's how you know. Those are the three things, the three areas the Hollywood con man really seems to gravitate towards. And if you're investing in a movie and the movie doesn't have distribution on it, stay away. There was just a guy who raised $400 million. Holy He's boy. going to prison now. The FBI just arrested him. But he, he raised $400 million across multiple projects. I don't remember the guy's name. Um, and they took him down, I think, last year, 2019, I think 2020. Um, and it's... Um, you know, that's a lot of money. That's not just doing it once. That's doing it a lot of times. Yeah. That's screwing you know? a lot of people. Yeah, wow. it really is. And he did exactly that. It was totally a Ponzi scheme. Wow. Wow. That's crazy. Okay. I think I know the answer to this, but uh, why did you keep going? I mean, you're an accountant. You can do numbers are universal. You could have gone in any other field. I mean, I know you'd love this, but, you know, after, especially after your deal in Mexico, uh, you know, we were reading that book was like, oh my gosh, can this get any worse? <laughs> you know, um, why do you keep doing it? Well, I like to say that people who come and work in the movie business are movie stupid. So I'm definitely movie stupid. That's part of it. Um, the other part of it is the industry has what has a characteristic to it that I like to call the golden handcuffs, which is if you work in wardrobe, you're probably a seamstress or you are a designer or someone who can work in some other industry besides entertainment. Or if you're a painter or um, everything except, or if you're a writer, or with the exception of possibly a producer or a director, almost every job in our business has a tangible and directly relatable skill that you can develop here that you can take to another industry. Okay. That's great. Yeah. You have developed a skill. The problem is, if you go work as a seamstress outside of Hollywood, those girls make, and boys, those people make 40 to $50 an hour on big features. Right. Um, in television, in wardrobe, they make a couple thousand dollars a week. Where are you going to go yeah. make a hundred grand making dresses for people? Nowhere. So it's golden handcuffs. You get into a lifestyle, you get into a way of being and a way of living that is hard to walk away from. And it's good money, you know, honestly, and it's fun and the people are nice and that's part of it. And I just, I, I've, I've done nothing in my career except, um, movie finance and I like it, you know, or I should say I've not done nothing in my career except movies. I've worked in, in the trenches of actual sound and recording. I've worked in marketing or specifically in advertising. Right. And I've worked in physical production and, and I don't think I have any skills that are translatable at a salary that is commensurate with what I've made for the past 15, 20 years. Right. Okay. That's, and I love it. You're one of the lucky few that could find something they love and work at it. That's, that's a rare thing to see. Um, so I do it have, is, but don't, you know, but I say to young people all the time, you don't have to love what you're doing every day. You just got to make a living. Right. Right. If yep, you are true. inspired by something else other than what you do for a living, then do it. Do it when you come home. You don't have to sit in front of the tube and watch Netflix all night long from six o'clock until you go to bed. Right. Find the thing you love. There's a great uh, podcast um, called The Side Hustle Show. And his he has a slogan. I listen to it once in a while. I actually like him. I think he's a interesting person. I think he's super positive. But 
um, one of the things he says is um, if your nine to five doesn't feed you, then find the um, five to nine that does. Right. Right. Which yeah. I think is amazing. Yeah. One of the things that I looked at uh, in that also in that vein is Damon John said, you need to have a, a career, you need to have a hobby and you need to have a passion. You need to make money off yeah. of all three. Absolutely true. You know? Yeah. So with that, if your passion is collecting hundred dollar bills then find something that can make you passive income. (laughs) That being said, a lot of people do have a passion for film, right? Let's say somebody wants to break into the film industry and make their own movie. What advice would you have to give them to trying to find investment to make their indie project? Well, I, I, so that's an interesting question and it has multiple layers to it and a multiple layered answer, I should say. Okay. And that is for the first time in the history of the human race, you any individual, you name it, has the ability to reach 2 billion people on two platforms, three, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, and add TikTok to that if you want. Right. So they used to be that marketing was really relegated to businesses that had a lot of money because you had to buy advertising. That has changed. So if you're a filmmaker and you have a passion for it, you, you well, let me take a step back. In addition to the marketing side of it, you can find it and you can build a distribution channel for about $60 a month using WordPress and various other plugins that you can set up on a paywall and distribute a website uh, online um, through whatever mechanism you want, right? So you've got distribution, you've got marketing kind of figured out. And you can do both of those for little to no money. Right. Equipment. When I started in the record business, in order to build a studio, you were going to spend $250,000 buying a mixing desk, a recording, a 24-track recorder, a whole bunch of microphones, and then another $750,000 building out of a space that you could record quality sound in. Well, now you can record with the thing that's in your pocket right now, and you can do video with the thing that's on your pocket, and you can, your phone, and you can do all the editing on software, and if you get it, if you if you look into DaVinci Resolve, which is an extremely high-level, complex editing, color timing, uh, rendering, output, CGI piece of software that you can buy the entire package for three hundred, but they have a free download. Oh, wow. uh, between your phone and DaVinci Resolve, you can make, cut, and deliver, and market, and distribute movies on your internet platform direct to consumer. So if I'm a young filmmaker, what am I gonna do? If I'm an aspiring young filmmaker, I'm going to make my movies on my phone, I'm gonna cut them on Resolve, I'm gonna distribute them out into YouTube, and I'm gonna collect money on my own platform where I put my content behind a paywall. Right, right. But before you do that, you need to make content such that you, you need to test whether or not you're playing in a league where people will pay you. The thing we do in Hollywood is we make content uh, well enough and interesting enough that people are willing to pay us to watch it. And that's the difference between the professional leagues and the amateur leagues. You're getting paid for your content. If you can't make shit that people are willing to open their wallet and pay you for, you're you're not a filmmaker or you're a filmmaker, but you're just screaming into the void. Right. Right, right, So you have to figure out how to tap into that audience. One of the ways you can do that is you can make content, blast it out to the world and tell everyone to go watch it, or you can enter it into film festivals. And if you get into a crappy film festival that's like a nowhere, God knows the name, it's not Sundance, it's not Telluride, it's not uh, Toronto, Venice, Cannes, blah, blah, blah. And the New York Film Academy actually has a list, they have a link of all the film festivals around the country, around the world actually. 
uh, and how much they cost to get in. But you enter your, your movie, your short, whatever you do, you enter it into these festivals and you use it as a gauge to determine what the level of your filmmaking quality is. And if, you know, they're going to lick you up and down until you're amazing, ignore all that. What matters is whether or not you can make money. And if you're a young film aspirant or even a not a young film aspirant, you're old, then make movies that matter to you, that you're interested in and distribute, market them and get people to pay you for them direct to consumer. That is the future of our business. You don't have to go hat in hand. You can still play that game. It's fantastic, but it's exasperating and it's somewhat uh, soul crushing for a lot of people. Right. So, okay, with that so in if mind, I were young, I'd do it myself. With that in mind, that said, do you see your position uh, being kind of, I don't know, weeded out uh, um, in the next You, you mean know, 15, as far as finance goes? Yeah. I don't think so. I mean, there's a lot of what I used to do doesn't happen anymore. It, it happens using algorithms. So um, I used to have a staff of people who sat around and did bookkeeping all day long. That doesn't exist in the United States. It all shipped. Right. It all shipped into Manila, the Philippines, and using um, algorithmic software like um, zero accounting packages and NetSuite accounting, and there's a couple of others out there that are actually really smart. I mean, we'll lob invoices into an email, and it'll figure out who the vendor is, how much we owe them, what for, what due date, what's the date of the invoice, and it, it'll pull all that up on a screen. And instead of my staff sitting in front of a, a machine entering it in, they now I now have one person looking at those and going, oh, yes, this is right. No, that's wrong. This is right. This is right. This is right. And it's probably 95% of the time it gets all the data points correct. So Man. I've, I've seen artificial intelligence impact my business in a profound way. But what it's done is it's it's freed up my staff to think. I don't have to... I don't have to hire someone to sit there and key stuff in anymore. The staff is thinking they're being more proactive. So I think it's changing the job we do. It's certainly eliminating jobs. No doubt about it. I used to have six people to work for me. I now have two. So it certainly has cut my staff significantly, but margins are shit. So, you know, it's not like I'm making a buckets of money and just pocketing it. It's in, we're just not getting paid as much as we used to. Pay. Right. So wow. it, I don't know that my, my job as a producer, uh, producers have always been redundant honestly and they figured out a way to insinuate themselves into the process as a line producer that is a job and a skill that's extremely complicated there's a lot of regulatory nonsense with the state and the fed not to mention guild and union rules and regulations you have to learn memorize and know how to actually put into practice and then be able to do the calculation in your head on the fly as you're going at you know 200 miles an hour at 10 o'clock at night when you're 12 hours in with the cameraman going we got to get off the clock guys we're running out of money <laughs> yeah. you, know, you got to know whether or not you can put, pay the meal penalty for the crew or get that actor off because they're way into turnaround those kinds of jobs those aren't going away because they're too complex and there's no machine that'll ever do that job for you right That's but cool. but yeah. i do think a lot of what we do is changing and becoming automated in ways that's going to change our how we do what we do it definitely is honestly all of that automation has made my life possible to be able to spend time with my 10 year old right. at this point in her life and my life i get to spend more time with her and i'm not relegated to sitting in a chair at a desk until 10 o'clock at night anymore i can do it from a screen at home after putting her to bed right great so that actually leads into my next question with all that extra free time you're getting now 
are you, what projects are you currently working on that you can share with us? Well, I'm writing, I'm working on two books. So I'm writing, the, I'm literally finishing the, the second book, which is, um, it, it, it's about that thing that is how, if you come into Hollywood and you want to work in the business, how do you get connected if you don't have a relative, an uncle, a cousin, or a friend who's in the business? Because this has been a business that's super opaque, and, it w- and it's a business of referrals. Right. And unless you had a friend, how do you build that for yourself? And right. that's what the book is about. It's about how do you come here, how do you get connected, and how do you stay relevant uh, in, in terms of getting into the business? It's a how-to manual about how to get connected to the business. I see too many people come here and leave disgusted for for reasons that aren't their own fault they just don't understand how to make it work and that's what that's what this speaks to and i will say that this is a business of you know there's 200,000 jobs in 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 the in the backside of making of making film i mean physical production that doesn't include the post production facilities and working for the networks and the tv stations and all that kind of stuff i mean the people who are in the backfield on the crew making movies it's about 200,000 250,000 people do it and um you know, there's a lot of jobs. Those are hard jobs to get. And by and large, for every single job that is open, there's five people who are qualified to do it and five people vying for that project who are available for that job. In the lower tier, like the PAs and the assistants, the writer's assistants, all of it, those jobs, there's literally a thousand people applying for those same jobs. I mean, when we, when we sometimes we'll go out to a posting looking for a PA position or a production assistant job, and we'll ask people to turn in resumes. You'll literally get 300 resumes, and it's it's no joke. You just put it in the pie on the left. They have an education. The pie on the right, they don't. And then you take the pie on the left, and you go through it, and they say, all right, when do they graduate from school? One year, three year, five year. They're five years out, moving on. Let's go talk to the one year out people because the five year out people are irrelevant to the job we want them to do. Mm-hmm. It's literally that binary. And then you go through 20 people, and you call them up and say, you available, you available, you available. You get some yeses, some nos. You try them out for a day or two. The ones that stick more than two days you keep for a while the ones that are gone in two days, you move on to the next. It's, it's literally that binary. So um, this book will sort of, um, it, 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 it'll show people how to be relevant, how to get connected, how to do the research, all those kinds of things. And the book that will follow that, which will probably be the beginning of next year, is um, if you're a filmmaker, what are the 20 steps you need to go through to make a movie that you can actually sell? Right? right. I hear it all the time. I, you know, I, I'm, I have a fair use application of my movie. Well, fuck you. Fair use means nothing. It's a great part <laughs> of the law, but there's no insurer in the planet that will insure a fair use. It just doesn't exist. Right. So unless, and unless you can get E&O insurance on your project and you can show the provenance from who actually wrote this product and has indemnified you from the fact that they haven't plagiarized, there's not a, there's not an E&O carrier that will write you an insurance policy such that you can get a distribution agreement because E&O is required for distribution. Distributors won't take it without it. E&O won't bind a policy unless you can say that every single thing in your movie has a genesis and, a, and any intellectual property that was perfected in the process of doing the job has actually been transferred into the company that owns that title. Wow. So anyway, that's the next book. It's, it's, it's actually not that complicated when you do when you've done it for 25 30 years mm-hmm, right. but it's complicated when you're looking at this mountain going oh my god what do i do there's actually a checkbox and and i th- this will sort of be a list of that in addition to an explanation of why it all exists so you can actually speak intelligently to it that's really cool i'm looking forward to reading both of those honestly what <laughs> when are they uh, when are you expecting them to re- release them 
the 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 first book about that's for crew um which has a uh, which has a tentative title of uh, i'm calling it a hollywood career explained um and it, that one will will be at the end of october early november and then the distribution the, the actual filmmaker guide that'll be probably q1 of next year i'm hoping february but knowing my schedule it'll probably be more like march right. that's nice uh now as far as your website goes uh timtutor.com um mm-hmm. you explain some of that on that also don't you i do i do talk a lot about it the purpose of the blog is just to to explain to people who come to hollywood this is how this place really works right, right. um it it and, and it it'll tell it'll talk about particular subjects or concepts in um you know 1200 word 2000 word kind of blogs and just kind of give you broad strokes the books, both books, will go into a lot more excruciating detail, as if you're in a class learning about all of these things, cool. and um, and give you methods that that we use in Hollywood for making sure we've hit all those checkboxes and covered everything we were supposed to have covered. Awesome, yeah. If it reads like your uh, first book, man, that's going to be a great book. <laughs> it, it won't read like the first book. The first book is is written more from. Um, from my experience working with, uh, uh, working with an internet, uh, billionaire or, or right. multi-million explaining to him, you've read it, you know how it goes, explaining <laughs> to him about this is how Hollywood really works. And here are the pitfalls, here are the problems and save your $20 million and go turn your large fortune into a small fortune somewhere else. Cause Hollywood is not the place to do it. Yeah, exactly. Um, I got one more question for you, Tim. And this is just a vain question at this point. What is your top three films of all time? Of all time? Yes. Um, My Fair Lady, The Godfather, and The Fisher King. Wow. That was nice. rapid fire. That's awesome. That was really I've good. I've been thinking about it for a while. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, My Fair Lady was a movie I had seen in a revival house that my aunt took me to when I was probably 13. And that would have been in the 70s. Actually, 13, I probably was in the 80s. But um, anyway, uh I remember watching that movie in color with an intermission at the Balboa Theater in in Newport, California, oh, thinking wow. to myself, that's amazing. First of all, Audrey Hepburn is so yeah. hot. And I was oh, like, man. God, she's beautiful. And then I later found out that she was an old lady at that point in 1980, whatever. <laughs> yeah. But nonetheless, <laughs> I had a thing for Liesl from The Sound of Music, and I found out, yeah, she's not 16 anymore, going on 15, right? <laughs> Anyway, films tricky uh, like that. What's that? I said films tricky like that. It always jukes they you out. They do. You have a crush on a woman <laughs> when she's young and gorgeous, and then it turns out she's still gorgeous, but she's not a young woman anymore. Right. Um, nonetheless, I I remember seeing My Fair Lady and thinking to myself, I want to. That's amazing. What is that? What's that thing? I want to. I want to work in. I want to work in movies. What is that? And that was kind of the. My aunt and my dad were the two people who really got me interested in movies. My dad took us to the movies all the time, and my my aunt took us to old revivals. And I just, I was so curious about all of it. And the reason I can rattle off the, my three favorite movies is because they had profound impact on my life in some way, shape, or form, and developed my opinion about the career that I've done now for thirty five years, but at a really young age. Right. So it's not like I've it actually some thought has gone into the reasons why. And it's yeah. all because of childhood memories. That's awesome. Well, stuff. Those are all three really good movies to begin yeah. with. So yeah. Fisher King yeah. is. Uh, I, I remember reading that draft. And then I later I remember reading the draft thinking to myself, this is amazing. 
And then I was work, I was a PA on Dream On and Deborah Hill, who produced and developed The Fisher King. Um, she was I had asked her about it because um, she was directing an episode of Dream On when I was a PA. And I had asked her, I said, what was it like when you read Richard LeGravigny's um, draft of that screenplay? And she said, it was the first screenplay I had ever read, read in my life where a, a, a writer had genuinely come in and actually um, written their first draft and made not only a competent draft, but a draft I could sell. And when you read the, that movie, it's absolutely amazing. It's the, 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 the Terry Gilliam film is very true to it with, a, with, you know, with that Terry Gilliam bent. But when you read the draft, it, it's, um, it's so emotional understanding the main character's motivation for why he's following this bum around yeah. uh, Robin Williams. Right. It, it's it, it, you, you just, you, there's so much empathy in it. When you read it, you're like, Oh my God, how do you, how do you get that on paper? And he did. He's a, he's an amazing writer. Wow. Jeez. That yeah. is, thank you for sharing that with us. Yeah, first no of all, that doubt. was, you rapid fire those. I was not prepared for that. Usually I stump people with that question. So <laughs> <laughs> kind of blew me out of the water with that one. Um, well, it's the reason why is um, the question you ask is a currency that we in Hollywood all the time use as a way of measuring what the person you're working with, what their interests are. Right. Right. If you're in, if you say to me, triple X and um, what, name two other Vin Diesel movies that are action pictures, I know that you don't belong on Tuesdays with Maury. Right. I know <laughs> that you probably belong on big action pictures and that's what you should be doing. Right. So it's a question that that probably stumps most people because they don't do it for a living and you don't think about the currency of what your favorite movies are. That's nice. That's a nice tidbit to know. I would never have even thought of that. That's wow. Yeah. That's really cool. Um, well, Tim, we know we've eaten up quite a bit of your time and we genuinely appreciate it. It's, you're our first interview that we've ever done. So we really appreciate you coming on and taking the time to talk to us. My pleasure. Love to do it. Yeah, it was great. I love the movie you. business and I want to see people succeed and I want to see people understand what this movie is, what the industry is really about and not the gloss and the glitz and the nonsense you hear on the outside. It's, it has a, it's a business and there are hundreds of thousands of people who do it for a living and you have to play hard and you have to understand the industry that you're working in and it's real and there's all kinds of people that can do it um, and I want to see people come here and succeed rather than leaving dispirited and broke. Right, right. Hey, we appreciate it. Uh, it was great to be able to pick your brain and you know almost get a mini master class on you know what it's like yeah. to be in the v- movie business. Very informative. Kind of blew the doors open quite a bit for me. Yeah. I, well, that's certainly my perspective of it. I'm sure there's other people who might think different things, but um, you know, for whatever it's worth, it's my opinion. It I seems a lot like a genuine perspective, though. Yes. So yeah, we definitely appreciate that. So my De- pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. Not a problem. We'll uh, hopefully be speaking to you sometime soon. Enjoy the rest Indeed. of your day. Have a good day. You too. Right. Bye. Bye bye. So that was Tim. Yeah. Awesome dude. Like that was super Tim's informative. I, I hope that was informative for everybody else as it was for us. You know, as like hearing what he had to say really takes some of the fan because everybody looks at Hollywood as this fantastical creature that's yes. hard to approach. Yes. Indeed. And you don't know what angles to approach it from. And having him kind of spell it out that way really kind of just like 
punched it right into you. Like, okay, it's not this crazy <laughs> mythical monster that everybody portrays it to be. I mean, we glamorize it. Yeah, we do. Right? Yeah, we do every day because, you know, it's we, f- we see the finished product all the time. We see even, you know, when the actors are out on the red carpet or, you know, when the movie comes out, we see that part of it. Right. And this, we get little tidbits of behind the scenes. Oh, yeah, we trained like this and we did this. And, we, you know, it was great to do this, but it was hard and all this. Right. But the real down, dirty, in the trenches work of making a movie right. is never put out there. Never. I'll tell you what, broadcast. knowing that he's writing two more books, oh, like, I'm, I'm picking them up. Like yeah. I, I, Anybody that okay. hasn't read his book, it's on Amazon. Just search his name, Tim Torterra, and you're going to find it. It's the first thing that literally pops up. Yeah. Fantastic book. It's like, a quick read. It really is. It is a very... Uh, Wonderful flow to the read. Yep. I mean, it was it was great. it was like a drama story yeah, all wrapped seriously. in one. Like he did a really good job with it, and dude, that he was a really awesome guy. Like yeah. I was so happy we got to talk to him. I hope everybody enjoyed it as much as oh, we yeah, did. Oh yeah, I hope so. It was super informative. Like I was not prepared for the amount of information <laughs> he was going to give us. Like here's I was, the thing: I was sitting there and I had to catch myself, you know, not just listening, listening. Yeah, because it was like, oh, we're doing an interview. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh crap, I got to come up with another question. Questions. Quick, uh. <laughs> And it's you know it flowed pretty well I think yeah uh, but yeah his it was so interesting hearing you know he he t- he explains everything in a way that's almost a story but it's informative right you know it's an exposition uh I it was great to have him on the show yeah definitely looking forward to trying doing more of these yeah. I hope everybody enjoyed it the way we did um yeah. you know that was having him as our first guest i don't think we could have done much oh, better I don't think so like either. he killed it and i really awesome. appreciate him for that so yeah. um i like i said i highly recommend everybody go and reads his book check out his website like i went to his twitter page today and he posts a lot of the links to his website where he gives like these little lessons and stuff right. i might have to go click on some of those because i'm yeah. curious like you and i are always biting at the bit to try to learn what goes into this stuff Maybe eventually they try to make one ourselves. Exactly. And knowing what we know now from him, like we're, I feel like we're a little more prepared to eventually. A little closer to that. Yeah. Than, you know, like you said, that mountain, you don't have to see that mountain. It's more like a little well, hill. Like he said <laughs> with his next book, he's making, you know, a list because it all, right. that's what it boils down to is a list. Right. And once you know your list, you can start checking off those boxes. And I'm and like, exactly. Like I said, everybody glamorizes it. Everybody looks at this fantastical beast. Mm-hmm. But clearly it's something capable of being done. It's very doable. And people can go and do it. And but like you got to have the ability to reach an audience, especially in our day and age. Right, we have the technology. You see, so many people cutting out the middleman, doing their thing, posting their own uh, content online. Right, uh, but yeah, like you said, if you can get it to where it's interesting enough to be behind a paywall, then you're making money off of it. Right, uh, but yeah, it, it was it was awesome listening to him. Yeah, no, it was know, really very well spoken man. Yeah, and knows his shit and. I loved his stories, like especially the Jackass crew. Oh yeah, that was great. <laughs> That's funny. So, oh, Mark, you got anything else you want to tack onto this? Nah, man. Uh, just you know, go to his website, timtotora.com. Yep. Uh, you can subscribe to, like you said, every Monday he puts out content. Yes. Uh, so just check it out. Yeah, like I said numerous times already. Definitely read his book. Read the book. Yeah. It's a quick read. Interesting as I'll get out. If you're even remotely interested in the film, like we are, right? Definitely worth reading. Or even if you're looking to produce your own movie, like he knows his stuff. He knew he knows what to look out for, and he points it out pretty directly. It's not like some of those books you read, like this is going to make you a better person. It's yeah. just <laughs> hot garbage of like, oh, well, you junk. could do this, yeah. but you can't. No. Like he spells it out and yes, gets does. you right where you need to know it. So, well, that was the first interview. Thank you so much, Tim. We genuinely appreciate oh, it. Just 
happy to have him on. Right. Yes. Truly yeah. happy. Um, you know, if there's any producers, directors, anybody out that has anything to do with the film industry that want can reach out to us, please reach please out to do. us. You know, we'll uh, we're on Facebook. Everything you can reach out to us there. Twitter, Instagram, the nine. Uh, we're on Patreon now. So you can find us pretty much everywhere. Just search for movies in black and white and we're yeah. there and all our contact info is in there. So you can send us an email and we'll definitely try to schedule some time to get you on because this was definitely worth it for me. And if you feel like you like our content enough, you know, just throw a couple of bucks at the Patreon. Yes. Yeah, so awesome. we're, we're trying to figure out some tiers to that to have some yes. kind of exclusive content. Um, yes, but exactly. we're it's something we're figuring out on our end. Uh, but by no means do we feel the need to have throw money at us. We're just... We enjoy doing this. Do. It's just fun for us. We do, really. So, all right, buddy. Well, this is this has been fun. Oh, it's going to be hard to really go back fun. to doing movie reviews after uh, something like it, this. It is. I mean, we're going to definitely be seeking <laughs> yeah. out more. Yeah, this is definitely something we're going to be rushing to go do again. Um, yeah. Definitely enjoyed it. And he was wonderful to have as a guest. Yeah. Definitely knew his shit. So, all righty. Until next time. Peace. I've been Kendrick. And I've been Mark. And this has been Movies in Black and White. Thanks for listening.